Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Deuteronomy. It's uh, the opening eight verses of the fourth chapter. Here uh, is a time at which the uh, Israelites are being reminded about who they are and whose they are. And so I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I have set before you this day. Here ends this reading from God's holy word.
Our New Testament reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew in the 16th chapter, beginning at verse 13 and continuing through verse 20. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell any that he was the Messiah. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Who am I? Who am I? This is the poignant question echoing through the ages. Directed here by Jesus to his disciple Peter and heard again today as the Spirit of Jesus uses Holy Scripture to speak to his people still. It's well and good that we should read and listen to the words of the so-called learned and wise authorities of the world as they consider and contribute to the discussion of the identity of Jesus. The Jews view him as a historically popular rabbi. The Muslims as one of the greatest prophets to have ever lived. The Hindus as an enlightened minister to the downtrodden. And it's not that Jesus wasn't these things, for scripture reveals that he was indeed all of these and more. But the history of the world is full of other great teachers and prophets and social justice advocates. So what then is the defining characteristic of Jesus' identity which sets him apart from all others before or since? In the Gospel according to Matthew, the author takes great care throughout his text to introduce us to the man and to point out his unique being as the Messiah, the Son of God. Over and over and over again in the first book of the New Testament, we are reminded of the Scriptures, which for the author and the audience of the day meant the writings that we refer to as the Old Testament. And how these writings in Scripture were fulfilled in this Jesus. The law of God as transmitted through Moses and the words of God as transmitted by the prophets, were of one accord, as together they all pointed to a a divine work which we are shown reached its accomplishment in the being and the work 
of Jesus the Christ. In a nutshell, that's how the author or authors of this text likely conceived their subject to be. And that acknowledgement is unequivocally stated when Peter is written of here in the 16th chapter of that gospel. His answer to Jesus' question regarding his unique identity, his unique purpose, are all wrapped up together in this short, sweet, and right-to-the-point response. And I find it interesting that the question is posed at this particular time. Now, Jesus could have quizzed his closest followers at any time throughout his teaching ministry with them, but the gospel, according to Matthew, records it as taking place right here. Now, what we've learned at this point in the gospel is that Jesus and his disciples have just crossed the Sea of Galilee, and they are proceeding now northward to the region of Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles uh, up the mouth, uh, the waters of the Jordan to its source near Mount Hermon. Uh, the city of Caesarea Philippi was unlike many of the towns and villages and countryside where they had done most of their ministry up, up to this point. Uh, it, you could find it on a map. So it was more like Salisbury than it was like Rehoboth in that regard. It had, until recently at that time, been called Peneus, as it was a city that had been founded and dedicated to the cultic worship of the Greek god Pan. But King Herod's brother had renamed it after himself, Philip, and as an honorific tribute to the leader of the new cult, the cult of emperor worship, hence Caesarea Philippi. So before arriving in a place with a fine reputation for idolatry, Jesus chooses to ask his followers to say not just what others think, what they have heard people say, but what they themselves believe Jesus to be. And it's rather interesting that among his followers, it's Peter who pipes up here with a response. For all the accounts that we have here in the Gospel according to Matthew and, and most of the others that we have in the rest of the New Testament bring us to an awareness that Simon Peter, well, he was not without his flaws. We are at this writing just two chapters past the halfway point in the gospel according to Matthew, and there's plenty of time ahead of us for him to prove his fallibility, and like us, he sure will. We read of him acting sometimes as one of those people who was better at talking the talk than he was walking the walk when it came right down to it. He could be impetuous. He could be pretty thick-headed at times, which seems to have been a trait that was shared by many of Jesus' disciples that he had called. And it gives me encouragement as one who has also felt such a call. But here we see, even if for a brief moment, None of these things. We only hear the words of one who has clearly seen and who clearly understands who Jesus is and what he is up to. Perhaps that's why Jesus credits the Father 
for prompting the response that comes through Peter. Because knowing him as he did, he may have thought there was just no other way that Simon, son of Jonah, could have come to such a spot-on understanding by himself. And as Peter has taken and passed this pop quiz of Jesus, the scripture seems to almost beg its readers to also consider their response to the very same question from the Master, who do you say I am? As you may have heard me say a few weeks back, one of the byproducts of this disruption in the ways that we go about being church is that we have taken to a a more intentional effort to share the word of the scriptural witness beyond the bounds of these historic sanctuary walls. As people are just not coming here to hear these words as once they did. So in the process of getting the word out to a wider audience, my hope and intent was for us to be reminding ourselves, we who are familiar and those who are not, for that matter, with some of the foundational tenets of the Christian faith. And this morning's reading includes a question from Jesus, which gets right to the bedrock of our whole belief system. Who do you say Jesus is? It's been said that confession is good for the soul. And there certainly is value in it, or we wouldn't give over a portion of our weekly worship every Sunday for the purpose of doing precisely that. We hear week in and week out words of assurance and forgiveness that follow the sometimes difficult and painful time of admission of our faults to God. The sort of confession that Peter gives is slightly different. We might perhaps label it as more of an affirmation of faith. Well, that too is an integral part of our Reformed worship services, including those here at Rehoboth. As we recite together the words of the Apostles' Creed, week in and week out, we are engaging in this act of public profession that the whole church has used for centuries to summarize what we believe to be true. So, were you to be asked this question like the disciples were, and were you to answer by simply reciting the words of the Apostles' Creed, well, you might get high marks, I would think, for you have expressed a well-accepted understanding of the purpose and the person of Jesus. But I'm going to challenge us a bit more this morning by suggesting that, while that certainly is a very good place to start, it isn't the be-all and end-all of an answer. And let me explain why. A good confession, like that which Peter gives here, goes so far. Jesus was seemingly quite pleased with his friend's insight that had been granted to him, But as we will later read in this very same gospel, Peter is going to prove himself to having rather little faith to go along with this conviction. He may be able to speak the words of truth about Jesus, but that's just the start, as it should be for all of us. For the Christian life is just that. It's a life. It's not 
a moment, even as rapturous a moment as it may be, when we come to finally confess what we know to be true for the first time. In other words, the Christian life is not reserved for a single day, a single moment. Our belief ought not be expressed solely with our tongues, therefore, though it may be hard for us to do, the confession is kind of the easier part. Time and again throughout the accounts contained in the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus is pouring contempt on the religious leaders of his day. They were all about lip service to God. And he was keen to show them up and label them as hypocrites. In marked contrast, as Jesus lived and taught by exposition and by example, one's life is rightly an extended confession of one's faith. It shows what we really care about. It shows what we truly believe. It betrays all of our loyalties and our idolatries, and it provides evidence to support the testimony that we've given concerning Jesus as Lord. Confession, then, is good not just for the soul, but it is also good for the body. If what we say about him is what we believe about him, then it will center our whole being in a way that is different and distinct from those who answer differently the question that Jesus poses, who do you say that I am? In the Old Testament, the people of God were invited to live in a distinctive manner, which would set them apart from the nations, as we were reminded again about in this morning's reading from the start of the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy. And so, too, the way in which we live out our belief ought to mark us as distinctive. In this world, that may have its disadvantages, as well as its advantages, but the scales are hardly in balance when it comes to this point, for none of what this world can offer compares to what we have been offered in Jesus. You shall know the truth, and it shall make you weird, it has been said. Isn't it interesting that right after Jesus commends Peter for his good confession, he swears all the disciples to silence? What's up with that? The divine time was not yet accomplished for a public proclamation of his messiahship that would take place in many ways during the days of Holy Week and following. But for now, for now, there was no prohibition given to his followers about acting out what they knew to be true. And the same goes for Jesus' disciples today. There is never a wrong time to live as if Jesus is Lord, for that is the truth that we have come to know. That is the truth that the Father has allowed us to confess. That is a confession that is good for the soul, and for that we may truly say, thanks be to God, and amen.